you've got your Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we'll be in uh, the book of Jonah, uh, starting this week for the next few weeks together. And we'll be looking at the first 16 verses uh, this morning. So you would give your attention to the Word of God as we read together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone out into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we will not perish. And they said to one another, Come and let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what are you, your people? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And, and, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging and the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for His glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open Your word this morning, we ask that You would use it. That you would open our hearts and our minds that we may understand it. We may understand how it applies to our lives. And that what You would have for us in it. And pray that you would use it to encourage us and equip us. You would use it to convict us and draw us back to you and the cross of Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were here uh, last week, you, you heard Harry uh, make the announcement that um, I'm, I'm preaching my own sermon uh, series. And uh, we're going to be together for four weeks. And you might think to yourself, Marty, why in the world would you pick Jonah uh, as your first series then? Um, well, for a couple reasons. One, I, I think that it's a book that, if you've been around the church at all for any amount of time, it's a book you think you know. And it's a book that I, that, I, that I thought I knew. Because it's so often a book that we, we, 
use in, in vacation Bible school and in children's Sunday school classes. And, and we, we know that there's this big whale that swallows Jonah. And, and then three days later, he spits him up on dry land. And then Jonah goes and does what he's supposed to do. And that's true. That, 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 that's kind of what happens from chapter 2 on. I mean, that's really the gist of it. There's a little bit more. But, but it's not just that. I mean, we, we've kind of made it this comic book of a, of a, of a story. And it's, it's so much more than that. You remember the last time I was in front of you preaching, it was close to the, uh, the, the end of our series on Christian living, and I preached about how the gospel changes everything, and that, that it even changes how we live day-to-day life, and it, it changes how we look at money and, and retirement, it changes how we look at, at relationships and, and service, it changes how uh, we approach parenting even, and, and I use that as an illustration to say that, that our experience of God's grace lets us parent out of God's grace. And let's just show our children a measure of grace and mercy. But because of the security we have in God's grace, it also lets us parent repentantly. It lets us get down on their level and repent to them when, when we've sinned against them in our parenting. When we've disciplined out of anger and, and, and not out of love. And, and the gist of it was that that Christian life is really one of just running back to the cross again and again and again. That, that as we grow as, as disciples of Christ, we grow to understand our sin more and more, and the cross grows, and we, we, we run to it more frequently and more often with more depth in our confessions because we understand and know the grace of God. And so the grace of God's really one of, of meditating on and, and, and studying God's grace and our experience of it. And then acting out of that study and that meditation and that remembering of our experience of God's grace. And so the Christian life is one really living out of our experience of the gospel and our understanding of it. And so when we get to the book of Jonah, and we could look at it as just like a, a, a lesson on how to be missionaries, but it really it's a book of devotion for us. It's a devotional study. Because the whole book of Jonah is about God's pursuit of Jonah and Nineveh, and as we'll see this morning, of others. And we, and we can laugh at Jonah a little bit. I mean, he does some pretty absurd things throughout this book. I mean, it's just, just crazy what he thinks is a good idea. But I hope over these next four weeks, we, we can also see the absurd measures we go to to flee from God, to run from God. And in, in seeing that, we can see how God pursues us as he pursues Jonah. So this morning, we're going to look at the first 16 verses uh, that we've just read together. And I, I want us to see three things uh, together this morning. One, that, that we have a prophetic calling. Secondly, that, that we have a rebellious spirit. And then third, and most importantly, that we have a committed God. So when we have a prophetic calling, the, the, the book of Jonah opens up with the Old Testament formula for a calling of a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. You could replace Jonah with lots of other people that are prophets in the Old Testament, and and that's the formula. When the word of the Lord comes to someone in the Old Testament, they're being called as a prophet. Jeremiah changes it up and says, you know, the word of the Lord came to me. He's kind of special in that way. The word of the Lord comes, and and so he, he has a divine calling on his life as a prophet. He has a message. The word of the Lord's given to him, and he's, he's told to go to Nineveh and speak against their evil and their sin. 
And he has this destination, this purpose, this commission of going to this city, this people, this nation, and proclaiming the word of the Lord to them. It's very clear he's called as a prophet. And you're thinking, what's that got to do with me being called as a prophet? We see in, in John chapter 1, these words start, the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you, get, you keep reading, and you get to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you're here this morning, and you claim Christ, if you're here this morning, and you would say you're a Christian, and, and you're looking to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the Word of God has come to you. He's come to you. He has left heaven to come to earth, to come to you. Right? We even read it in our assurance of pardon, right? That the promise that the word of the Lord be what? Written on our hearts. We've been given the word of God. If you're a Christian here this morning, the word of God has come to you. That's the first part of the calling. That's the first part of the formula. Well, the, the, the second part, you've got to have a message. Well, Revelation tells us that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. The gospel. The testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So we've got the message. And we've got a destination. Whether it's the Great Commission or Jesus' words at the beginning of Acts. We've been told to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim this. And Jesus promised that we'd, we'd even get the Spirit, right? We'd get this power that, that the, the prophets of old were anointed with. Jesus says that, that when He leaves, one is coming, a helper is coming. It's the Spirit of God that dwells within us. We know this is a big deal because Jesus tells the disciples before they go, they've got to wait for it to come. And that when it does come, Crazy things start happening, right? Acts 2, there's like flaming tongues of fire on people's foreheads. You don't need a double shot of espresso to wake you up when that happens. I mean, that, that'll wake you up. And, 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 and they begin to proclaim and exalt Christ. And they're, they're preaching the gospel, and, and everyone there is hearing it in their own tongue. I mean, it is absurd what's happening. It's so absurd that those who are observing it and not part of it are saying, these people are what? They're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, they're not. It's only the third hour. Let me tell you actually what's happening. And he, he goes then to, to, to tell them that what's happening is the fulfillment of prophecy in Joel 2. Well, Joel chapter 2 tells us what? That, that in, in, in those days, declares the Lord, in the last days, that he will pour out his spirit on all of us. And that our sons and daughters will prophesy. And that, that the young men and the old men will see visions and have dreams. And that the slave and the slaveholder will prophesy. That all of us who have the spirit will be prophets. So Peter's explaining to them that, that, that no, what's happening is the fulfillment of this because the Messiah has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and therefore the Spirit has come and the age of the Spirit is here and if you're in the age of the Spirit and you've come to Jesus, you've been given the Spirit of God and you've been made a prophet. You've been made a prophet. You've been called, you've been given a message and you've been told to go. We have a prophetic calling just as Jonah does. Are you answering that call? Are you answering the call to be a witness and a prophet for Christ Jesus? 
Secondly, we've got the first major tension in the book of Jonah in, 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 in verse 3. He gets the calling in verses 1 and 2, and in verse 3, it, it starts off like you think maybe okay. You know, it, it starts off in verse 3, but Jonah rose. Well, he was told to do that. He was told to arise and go to Nineveh. So the first part of it, he gets right. It's, it's the words after that, those next two words, that he rose to flee. Most commentators refer to Jonah as the reluctant prophet. Um, I, I think that's too soft of language, really, because the reluctant prophets aren't new things. Almost every prophet is a reluctant prophet. They're almost all like, is there any, is anybody else out there? Could you send anyone else? There are a few of them that say, Lord, here am I, send me. Right, Exodus 4, Moses gets the call from God, and he's told, hey, Moses, at the age of 80, I'm going to send you back over to Egypt. You're going to confront Pharaoh, and then you're going to lead my people out and lead them to the promised land. And uh, what does Moses do? Is, is he just like, all right, let's go? No, he goes, Lord, we, 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 we got a problem. And the Lord says, Moses, I own that mouth. That's not a problem. And, 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 and he keeps going, right? I mean, Moses keeps making other excuses. He shows a reluctance. What happens here is not a reluctance. It is straight-up rebellion. Nineveh is some 200 miles northeast of where uh, Jonah is when he is called. And Tarshish is, is on the southern coast of Spain. Not exactly sure, but it's on the southern coast of Spain. They're not in the same place. And, and we understand why he chose Tarshish, right? I mean... Nineveh's up kind of close to, to where Mosul is in, in, the, in the modern-day nation of Iraq, and um, it's the desert. It's kind of harsh. They want to kill him, most likely. Tarshish is, is the southern coast of Spain. I mean, if you went to Malaga on the missions trip, you really understand why he wanted to go there. The beaches are beautiful. The people are wonderful. They've got paella and not falafel. I mean, it's fantastic. He says, no, I'm I'm going the opposite direction of your calling. But here's the interesting. Tarshish is is mentioned before. It's mentioned in the book of Isaiah in chapter 66. It's one of the places that the glory of God has not yet been made known. So in a sense, Jonah's saying, "I, I know you're calling me over here to Nineveh. Somebody needs to go to Nineveh. They they need they need to hear the message. I get it. I'm going to serve you, but I, I want to, I'm going to do it over here in Tarshish. It's a little more comfortable, a little easier. I like the lifestyle better. They don't want to kill me yet. We do this, right? Some, some of you are here this morning, and you feel that you're being called to a particular person or place or ministry to serve. And you think, no, it's too uncomfortable. That's too hard. It's too awkward. It's too difficult. It's going to upset my life a little bit. And so you say, Lord, I'm going to serve you, but I'm going to do it right here where it's easier. I have a a, a dear friend. Uh, He was uh, one of my college roommates. And after college, he stayed at, 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 at college, and he served with Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. And while he was serving there, I mean, he was killing it. He was doing awesome. People were, like, just affirming him in, in his call to ministry. And, and uh, six months after I started seminary at Covenant, he moved to St. Louis and started seminary. So he was my college roommate. 
great friend, and he moved to St. Louis, and we did seminary together, and then we finished, and he went back into campus ministry as an RUF campus pastor. And he, and he went to one of the most difficult campuses in the Southeast, uh, a prestigious top 10 public university, um, a public Ivy, a large school, a diverse school that, that people didn't really succeed at very often in, in the eyes of most people. Like, they'd get there and they'd, they'd either get burnt out trying or they, they would hunker down and just focus on the church kids that kept showing up. And he got there and, and that wasn't the case. For some reason, the Lord began to bless his ministry and, and, and students and the community and faculty were coming and just laying themselves bare to him, their brokenness, their sin, and saying, give me some hope. Give me something to hold on to. And he would call and we'd talk through these things. And then about the third year, in one of our conversations, he just said, I don't think I'm really doing what the Lord's called me to do. And I'm going, are you, are you, are you kidding me? Like, we all see the fruit of this. It's, you're, you're doing awesome. And he's like, yeah, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm doing what the Lord's called me to do. And I, I drove up um, to, to see him and, and have dinner with him. And um, in that conversation, he said, this about his call to ministry. I've always chosen to do ministry because it's the easy thing. People affirm me in it, and I can hide. And those first two, you would think, well, it comes easy because you're gifted for it. The Lord's gifted you for it, and, and you're affirmed in it because you're fruitful. But that last one is just weird. What he was saying was that where he was called was not where he was serving. He was hiding he was fleeing. And the easiest place to do that for him was an RUF, as an RUF campus pastor. Within the year, he had left the pastorate. He had left RUF. They had moved to a new city for his wife's career. She's an assistant dean of students at a, at a big university. And um, he now works as a project manager for a big commercial development company. And there's a peace and a joy in his voice when I talk to him now that he never had as a campus pastor. I mean, there was excitement because people were coming to Christ, but there was never a peace and never a joy. And all of a sudden, as he's stopped hiding, there's a peace and a joy. How am I going to use my seminary education? How, how am I going to love and share the gospel with my colleagues and, and my clients and even my competitors? How am I going to serve the church? And these are questions now that he's asking and he's finding joy in the answers. We do the same thing. We, we, we often maybe feel God calling us to something over here and it's just too difficult and too hard, too dangerous and too risky and say, oh, I'm going to serve you, but I'm going to do it over here. And we're hiding in plain sight. To everybody else that's looking on, it, it, it looks great and beautiful and you're doing awesome stuff and the glory of the Lord's being made known in, in, in a place that needs to be made known, but that is not where you're called. And you're actually in rebellion. That's Jonah. I'll go to Tarshish where the glory of the Lord meets, needs to be made known. I'm just not going to Nineveh. And he's deliberate about it. I mean, he goes and spends money at great expense to get on a boat going there, right? He finds a cargo ship and says, hey, will you take me as a passenger? And they say, sure, it's going to cost a lot of money. And he just goes, here's all the money I got. Take me to Tarshish. We expend ourselves running from God, fleeing from him. And it doesn't work. I mean, David, 250 years before Jonah has already told us it doesn't work. We heard it in our call to worship this morning. Even if I take the wings of the morning and settle at the outermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will hold me, your right hand will guide me. 
And Jonah's like, you want to bet? Watch this. It doesn't work. You can't outrun God. It just doesn't work like that. We have a prophetic calling. We have a rebellious spirit, but we also have a committed God. We have a God who is committed to us, to you. But he's also committed to his purposes. Jonah's trying to flee. Verse 3, he gets uh, in this boat, and then verse 4, what happens? Here comes the storm, and it's a bad one. That happens, right? We, we, we start thinking, I'm going to go my own way, God. Like, your plan sounds good, but my plan sounds better, so I'm going to do my plan, and then a storm hits our life. And our first thought is, why does God not love me? Or we, we begin to think, man, my relationship with God is just all out of sorts. And that might be true. But God does not throw storms into our lives because he doesn't love us. He throws storms into our lives because he loves us deeply. And he is using them, just as he's using this storm in Jonah, to draw us back to himself. And to accomplish his purposes. Think about that. That that, that you're not able to outrun him because of his commitment to you. And he is going to rescue you. Even if you have to nearly kill yourself for it to happen. I mean, that that happens, right? Jonah gets thrown over and he's treading water for a while and he's waiting for rescue. God is committed in his deep love for you to rescuing you. That's why Christ came. You can't outrun God. You can't outrun the Lord. This storm is raging. It's expressing that disciplinary action of a father who loves his son. If you're a parent, you know that love. Because there are times where the last thing you want to do is discipline a child. But in love, you know you've got to. That's this storm. He doesn't just throw a storm in his way. For the rest of of, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 16, he really just begins to embarrass Jonah. I mean, he, he is humiliating this prophet Jonah Um, the the, the storm comes and and, and the sailors are uh, they're afraid what do the sailors begin to do they begin to pray to their gods what hasn't Jonah done yet pray to his God here we have these pagans whose prayers are worthless, whose gods are non-existent, and they have more devotion to their religion and their gods than Jonah has to his. How embarrassing. How humiliating. What kind of prophet is this? You ever have that kind of feeling? I, I, I have that feeling from time to time where I'm being humiliated by the pagans, by, by, by the non-Christians. It usually starts with, with someone ringing my doorbell. And it's either two young men in white shirts, black pants, with bike helmets on, or three or four people with the guidepost. There to tell me about their religions. And as they walk away, I have to wonder, when was the last time I showed that kind of zeal? 
When, when was the last time I showed that kind of love for others that I wanted them to know? Salvation. That I would ring their doorbell. It's embarrassing at times. It's humiliating that they have more devotion to the mission of a God who doesn't exist, to something that's powerless, than we often have to the beauty of Christ in the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. They're praying to their God. They, they, they throw everything overboard trying to lighten the ship. And then verse 6, what happens? The captain comes down and is like, wake up. We've been praying to our gods. It ain't worked. We need you to pray to your God. So we got Jonah who hasn't prayed yet. We got the pagans who've been praying to their gods. And they're now saying to Jonah, the one who knows the one true and living God, could you wake up and pray already? I mean, they're forcing it upon him. Verse 7, it, it, it says, let's cast lots and figure out why this evil has come upon us. What's brought it upon us? They begin to seek the will of the Lord. They begin to discern the will of God. Right? We, we know that casting lots, Proverbs tells us that man casts the lots, but the decision is the Lord's alone. And it's not just the pagans, it's not just the ancient Israelites. We see it in the New Testament, right? When they're going to, to replace Judas, what do they do? They cast lots. For the decision is God's and God's alone. And so these pagans who don't even know the one true and living God are seeking his will. Jonah knows his will and he's kept his mouth shut. In fact, he's continuing to rebel against it and run away from it. I mean, he's just being humiliated, embarrassed by these pagans who, who he didn't want to go and share the gospel with in the first place. I mean, these most likely aren't Ninevites. They're Phoenicians because they're the sailors, and that's who were the sailor guys of the day. But they're the same kind of people. And what happens? Plot twist, right? They, they cast lots. Why is this evil upon us? And you're thinking, well, it's got to be one of them. No, it's Jonah. The lot falls on Jonah. Surprise. And so they turn to Jonah. And they begin to question him. First one, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And then without taking a breath, they begin to say, what's your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? And what people are you? They're asking these questions because if they can find out what country he's from and what people he's from, they'll know what God he worships. They're forcing a testimony out of him. This rebellious prophet is now being forced by their questioning to give testimony to God and to himself. How absurd is that? And so what does he say after all these questions that they ask him? He says, well, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And I picture right now like it's a cartoon and their like mouths just fall open and they're like, and they're like chins way down here because they're probably going, you fear the Lord. You're not really looking like it right now. You're not really living like it right now. You don't look like you fear anything right now, particularly. But you fear the Lord. 
But their mouths also drop because what they realize, and they grow exceedingly afraid. They begin now to fear the Lord. Because the lot fell on him to explain why this evil had come upon him. And his, his answers to their questions say, I'm a Hebrew, and my God's the sovereign God. My God's the creator God. My God's the one who made the land and the sea. And they're like, so this storm is your God's. He controls this. And, and Jonah's kind of like, well, yeah, yeah, you could say it that way, I guess, yeah. So they force him to give testimony, and they grow afraid because of what he has said. And what's their response? So tell us what we need to do, and he says, you've got to throw me overboard. And they're like, we're not there yet. And they begin to try and row their way out of the storm. They dig in deeper with their oars, the Hebrew says. But just like their prayers to worthless, non-existent gods failed, their works fail too. Their labors fail. You can't row your way out of the storm that God puts in your life. We try it. God throws a storm at us and we try our best to weather it and row our way out of it, thinking if we can just get to the other side of it, we'll get what we want out of it. It doesn't work like that. He, he has thrown the storm at Jonah to work his purposes and to accomplish the things he has set out to accomplish. Drawing Jonah back to himself. Making sure Jonah's booty gets the Nineveh to, to, to preach the gospel to them. And to show his love and grace and mercy to these pagans. So they can't row their way out of this storm. And what happens when their rowing fails? What happens when their works fail? What happens when their labors aren't enough? They pray. Verse 14, they pray. If you've got your Bible open, you can look at who they pray to. It's a capital L and a capital O and a capital R and a capital D. Jehovah, Yahweh, Adonai, the one true and living God. These pagans who just a few verses before this were praying to worthless, non-existent gods, are now praying to the one true and living God. They're, they're now praying to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Not because of anything Jonah's really done. He hasn't really, I mean, he's been forced to share with them and, and, and make a high confession about who God is to them. And God has used it. Even in his rebellion, he has used Jonah to draw these pagans to himself. And, and, and their prayer is, Lord, let not his blood be on us. Essentially, we realize we've come to the end of ourselves. The only thing we can do is throw him overboard. And they throw him overboard. And the storm ceases. And their reaction is almost identical to the reaction of the disciples when Jesus quiets the storm. They're astonished. They're astonished. Who is this God who controls even the storms? And what does it lead them to? It leads them to worship. It leads them to worship the one true and living God. It says they make sacrifices and take vows, as the psalmist says believers will do. Jonah's running. He's rebellious. He thinks that, that he's going to get away from all of this. 
and God throws this storm in his life, and through this storm, he not only begins to draw Jonah back to himself, who's overboard right now, blub blubbing or treading water, one of the two, waiting to be rescued, he hopes. But he uses Jonah's rebellious spirit to accomplish his purposes. We're, we're going to talk more next week about how this storm is, is God's love for Jonah, God's mercy for Jonah. There's no way that Jonah's going to get away from the presence of God. And if you're in Christ this morning, there's no way you're going to run from his presence either. He is going to do what he has to do for you to experience his grace and for you to share his grace. And he not only had a love for Jonah, but he had a love for those pagans on that boat. And he used Jonah's rebellious spirit that put him in that place to give testimony to the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. Look, we, we come by our rebellious spirit pretty easily. It's just our sinful nature. It is just our sinful nature. But what did God do for these rebellious spirits, these wicked hearts? We know what he did. Jonah was born in a city called Gath-Hefer, 2 Kings tells us. It's just west of the Sea of Galilee and about three miles north of a little town called Nazareth. So just three miles south of where Jonah grew up, another young man grew up who was a prophet who had a calling, a calling from his father to lay down his life for you and for me. And, and, and times would get tough, right? They would be difficult. And against that great resistance, time and time again, Jesus would say, I came not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jonah is the antitype. Jesus is the prototype. Never reluctant. Never rebellious. Jonah, Jonah didn't want to take the gospel to the wicked and sinful Ninevites. Jesus is the gospel for wicked and sinful hearts, like mine and like yours. He knew the pain of his calling. I mean, he would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there be any other way. Then he would finish it with, but not my will, your will be done. See, where Jonah failed again and again and again in his rebellion, Jesus never did. He answered the call and laid down his life for you and for me because of his commitment to us and his deep love for us. That's the call of grace. The call of grace is to, to look to the cross and to take up our own cross and follow him, to lay down our comforts, to lay down our agendas, to lay down our own plans for his, and to follow him, and to proclaim boldly the gospel we have experienced, the grace that we know. Have you heard the call of grace? Are you sharing the call of grace? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your love for us, for your pursuit of us, for your commitment to us. We pray this morning that you remind us each and every day, each and every hour of your commitment and pursuit of those whom you love. That we might rest in that and we might be encouraged and equipped to answer our call as your prophet and witnesses to the grace of Christ Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.